The world is always on, but you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. At Mattress Firm's Black Friday Now Sale, save up to 60% on Sealy with Queen Mattresses starting at $279.99. Talk to a sleep expert today and unjunk your sleep. Welcome to America, the land of junk sleep, where it's bedtime, but you're double booked. Here, there's always one more deadline to meet, episode to watch, or meme to share. The world may not want you to sleep, but we do. Only the sleep experts at Mattress Firm can help you find the right bed at the right price. Unjunk your sleep. In-store or online at mattressfirm.com today. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. This week, we have one that I've been looking forward to for a few weeks um, since we mentioned this. Uh, Well, we didn't mention it to you guys, but me and Dad have been talking about doing this one for a little bit. It reminds me of a little holiday that we went to as a child. If you remember when we went to Paris for a holiday where I decided to get lost in Disneyland. <laughs> Just a and little bit. Yeah, I for, the, for those of you who don't know, what was I, about seven or eight years old? And uh, th- as a family, they all decided that we were going to go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And that's what I heard, and that's where I went, and then I turned around, and they, they decided not to go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride and to leave me in the middle of Disneyland on my own as an eight-year-old. Yeah, so I got lost. But... Unfortunately, we found you again. you found me again. Um, (laughs) But we were staying at the Davy Crockett Ranch. We were. Yes, and this is a story... Well, actually, to be honest, he was just a sort of an an anecdote to this story, really. Sort of turned up Mm. towards the end and... Yes. Yeah, well, um, it's definitely something that I think people... He's in it. Yeah, he's in it. Um, (laughs) So this is something that excites me a little bit. It's quite an interesting quite an interesting one it's i know a little bit about this myself um which is always good because if you've got any questions i can actually answer them instead of going i have no idea and make myself <laughs> sound stupid um but this week we're talking about one of the most famous battles in american history i would say, say for an american for an american yes and pre-civil war yes yeah yeah between the uh the in- war of independence and the civil war Yep, there was uh, a few others that they got involved in. Well, they've been in a war since they started, haven't they, really? <laughs> you know, there's always someone to fight. So Yeah. Um, but what are we talking about this week, then? Okay, well, <clears throat> in, the very, in the basic realm of history, very, very few people can claim not to have heard of the Alamo. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, so that's what we're talking about. The Alamo. Yes. The Alamo. Um, so what is it, where is it, and what happened there? Is, so, is the gist of yeah, what we're going to go through. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Now, uh, I mean, the Alamo was an old Spanish mission, kind of like a church. It was built by the Catholic missionaries to minister to the natives of the area. At the time it was built, 1744, it was near a place called San Antonio de Bezar. And that's in Texas. Yeah. Well, well San Antonio, Texas now, isn't it? It is. Its original name was uh, San Antonio de Valero Mission. Um, and due to sort of development and population expansion and everything else, it is now in San Antonio. Yeah. Which is quite a famous tourist area i would say it certainly is yeah one of the biggest cities in texas and the reason people have heard of it as we've already said there was a battle there 
That was. Uh, between the 23rd of February and the 6th of March, 1836. Okay. So we're talking sort of nearly 180 years ago. Yeah. Well, Fair it's knocking enough. on 200, really. You're only 15 years out of 200. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah too bad. Yeah. Um, nah, <laughs> you're going to like this. Right? Believe it or not, there's there's two ways of what looking of, of looking at what became known as the Battle of the Alamo. On one hand, it's a story of self-sacrifice for the greater cause and a fight for justice against tyranny. And on the other hand, it's about a country defending its borders and people from a foreign invader and the restoration of law and order. Yep. So in this podcast, I'm going to try and tell you the story as it happened. Hopefully, I'm going to dispel some of the myths surrounding it. And with a, as with a lot of history and what we are led to believe, it's all written by the victors. Yeah. So, which is a strange one in this case. Cause. It is because there are very, very going to be very, very few people, especially who listen to this, who don't know the outcome of this event. Yeah, but in reality, it was a really, really small portion of the Texas Revolution, and what people are taught about this particular battle comes from the losing side. Yes. Because in the end, Texas did break away from Mexico. Yeah, so essentially it's a, it's a losing battle but a winning war. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, shall we start with some, some, some of the, the sort of things? Let's start with Mexicans versus Americans. Okay. All right? Certainly not true. No. All right. A lot of the defenders in the Alamo at the time of the battle were native and native mexicans they weren't americans i won't say a lot of them because the majority were american yeah but they came down from the north and had only been in the area for a couple of weeks so they couldn't actually be deemed as fighting for independence because they've only just arrived in the area yes right yeah these people in the main were hoping to gain praise, infamy, and land once they were victorious. Okay, yeah. Jim Bowie. I don't know. I call him Jim Bowie because that's the British pronunciation. Well, I've just read it. I would have said Bowie as well. Yeah, because it's B-O-W, which is bow, as in bow tie. Yeah, and I-E. And I-E on the end, which is E. Well, I think David would have something to say about it. Maybe. David Bowie. So... Well, we will go. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I've I've heard it called Bowie as well. Yeah, but it is Jim Bowie. Um, uh, he was actually Mexican. He he wasn't American. Um, he was a, a national. Um, yeah, national of Mexico. Um, mm. And the battle itself has been made into one about culture, when in reality it was part of an undeclared Mexican civil war between the Mexicans. And a group called the Tejanos. Right, okay. Uh, okay. The defenders of the Alamo, they fell into two distinct categories. The Texians and the Teja- uh, the Tejanos. Right, okay. Okay, and a Tejano is a Mexican-born person from Texas. Right. And the Texians are Americans who settled in yeah. Mexico. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to refer to the occupants of the mission or the Alamo as Texians or defenders. Yep, makes sense. Although they are also include the Tejanos. Right, yeah, yeah. To tell the story of this particular battle, uh, we've got to go back prior. So we've got mm-hmm. to go back to 1821 and the Mexican Revolution. And one of the regions in the newly independent country of Mexico, because they yeah, they, they fought succeeded. Spain, yeah, and they won. They kicked Spain out. Yes. And in the northeast area of uh, the country was uh, an area called. Uh, <laughs> Go on, let's get your pronunciations. Cohuila Teas. Yep. Okay. Um, and immediately. After the revolution, this area was considered by the government to be vastly underpopulated. Yeah. 
despite it being probably the most fertile land in Mexico. And this resulted in unrestricted immigration. And the, the, the Mexicans sort of allowed this, and that allowed... The Mexicans allowed Americans to move into the territory. Yeah, because they wanted it to be worked on. And become Mexican. Yeah. So by 1830, there were over 20,000 Americans in the area. Wow. But this mass immigration wasn't sanctioned by the U.S. government. But the Americans did it anyway. Once they were once they were there, they established settlements, and they tried to live under American laws. In Mexico, yes. Okay. Um, the Americans arrived. The more people wanted the land to be part of America. Okay. Despite it was despite it being Mexico, so. One of the problems that this created was the these people coming in brought the American religion. They brought their slaves because the majority came from the southern states. Yep. But Mexico didn't have slavery. No. And it also was Catholic. Yeah. So you, you have all of that going on. So when this bloke was elected president in 1833, and I'm going to refer to him as Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Okay. Yeah, because his real name, <laughs> you're going to really like this, you imagine signing this down, was Antonio de Padua Maria Severino Lopez de Santa Ana y Perez de Lebron. Yep, we'll stick with Santa Ana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That took some learning. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm signing a whole A4 sheet of paper at the bottom. It is, isn't it? Gosh, you'd never fit that in a box, would you, nowadays? No. Okay. Um, and he very quickly became in, came into contact. Once he became president, he became he came into contact and uh, conflict with uh, the old-style Mexican Republic, and he tried to change the way things were done. Um, so he kind of became a bit more of a dictator, um, he brought in laws that were specifically designed to generate income mm-hmm. um, because Mexico had a massive national debt and they'd had to borrow a lot to actually get Spain kicked out. Yeah, I was so they, they owed a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and he introduced taxes and laws to to ease the burden of this, this debt. And these decrees and laws affected everybody in Mexico. Okay. Unfortunately, the American colonists in Texas and a few other groups kind of objected to these laws. Hmm. Which is wrong, essentially, because if you're on someone else's land, you abide by the law of that land. Yeah. Um, I mean, this resulted in what became known as the Texas Revolution and the creation of the Republic of Texas. Right. Now, many Americans rallied to the defense of Texas, uh, swelling the ranks of the militia, because they didn't have an army. Um, they were faced off against the Mexicans' attempts to enforce the rule of law. So the Mexicans and the Mexican government started to believe that the U.S. had a hand in this insurrection and that the U.S. wanted Texas to be part of the U.S. and not Mexico. Right, okay. That makes sense. Now, this is how wars are started. Yeah. yeah. So it obviously caused problems with the Mexican authorities who refused to recognize the new republic. You know, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast on the subject, this subject alone, um, but that's probably for another time, I would have thought. Yeah, I'm sure we'll <laughs> find time at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, during 1835 the Texans succeeded in pushing the Mexican army out of the region. In fact, the last American soldiers were actually defeated on the 9th of December, 1835. Right. So, as, as a result of the colonists trying to defend their rights, the Mexican Congress passed a decree called the Tornell Decree 
on the 30th of December that year. Okay. Now, this declared that any foreigners fighting against Mexican troops will, in brackets, be deemed pirates and dealt with as such. Being pirates, they were citizens of no nation presently at war with the Republic of Mexico and therefore fighting under no recognised flag. Okay. Now, that's a bit of a stinker. Yeah, because if you class yourself as American and then you're being classed as a nobody, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this had a number of consequences, and one of them being that in the eyes of Mexicans, non-Mexicans fighting against them can be executed on the spot as pirates. Yeah. It also meant that the Mexicans were effectively banned by law from taking prisoners. Okay. Why you don't that? take prisoners. You pirates. You do not take prisoners. Pirates. You don't take pirates as prisoners. You execute them on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, this decree was actually sent off to the new U.S. president at the time, Andrew Jackson, in a letter, but the letter wasn't widely distributed and it's highly likely that this information didn't actually reach the people living in texas yeah so we'll send so they, him we'll send him a letter but that's it so they didn't actually realize that the consequences at that point yeah so so let's just take a little look at the situations the mexicans found themselves in and to put it in perspective okay Imagine if the U.S. were to open up Alaska for colonization due to the lack of population. Thousands of Canadians move in and they establish their own towns, their own laws and their own ways in the area. And when the U.S. decides that it's going, they are going to follow American laws and pay American taxes, they refuse. When the government tries to collect the taxes, they actually shoot American soldiers. So when the law enforcement goes after them, these Canadians take up arms in open revolt and kick the US out of Alaska. How would your American listeners feel about that? Well, I was just thinking how I would feel about that, and I think I'd be a bit pissed off. Yeah. I think you'd probably, yeah. When you you look at it from that perspective, you can see a different side to what you what you learn from the Alamo. So, yeah. we, we, you know, like I said, obviously this is one that's written about the, you know, we hear it from the American side. And when you actually put it into a perspective of what was actually going on at the time, the fact that the Americans uh, openly moved into a, a land and then stuck the middle fingers up at the people who owned the land and then didn't expect any backlash off it, you can kind of understand why there was... Mm. Uh, a, a Mexican answer to this. Yeah, so you can now imagine how Santa Ana actually felt in in a tail end of eighteen thirty five. Mm. I mean, to be honest, he could probably take the blame for allowing it to occur in the first place, but it had been going on for about fifty years and well before he actually came to power. Yeah. So it's something that's uh, it was sort of almost embedded into Texan society. At yeah. That point. So. Determined to uphold Mexico's honour and prevent Texas from breaking away, um, Santa Ana just vowed to retake Texas. Yeah. So he recruited a substantial army, December 1835. He brings in this law and he he gets an army. He then gets this army to march towards Texas. Okay. February... 1836 so less than two months later after this law comes out they enter the republic of texas now the mexican army was huge they were a professional army they had just beaten spain which was one of the world's superpowers of the time yeah they were weren't they yeah so they're they're not a sort of of biggest navy biggest army yeah they were then they're not a run-of-the-mill sort of basic militia they are A, a, basically the dog's bollocks of an army on the flip side to that less than a hundred years prior to that the americans had beaten the best army in the world so yeah I know. you know so the americans weren't under trained you know the american army was yeah but quite, it was not the american army there were no texan no settlers that were there yes that's true now so this is where um the sort of the alamo comes into the story Santa Ana splits his army into two. Uh, 
one half he sends up the Texan coast under General Jose de Uria, and he just wipes out everything. Yeah, the lot. Yeah. And anybody who surrendered, they got wiped out as well. Because of this, you know, we're not we can't take prisoners. We're not going to take prisoners. We've had enough of this. Yeah. Are we talking women and children here as well? Or <sighs> they just No, because they would not be fighting. Oh right, okay. So it's only people fighting against Mexican soldiers. Oh, okay. So if you yeah. weren't fighting, so if you weren't fighting, you were you were okay. And Santa Ana ha- headed for uh, Bahia, or mm-hmm. Bahar. Uh, now the Alamo was in the way. <laughs> yeah, um, it was originally built as a Catholic mission and populated by nuns who converted the local population to Catholicism. Uh, during the Mexican Revolution, the buildings were used as a garrison for troops and storing weapons. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, it was later described by Santa Ana himself as an irregular fortification hardly worth the name. Right. He didn't actually think much of it. No. But then again, it wasn't designed to be so. No, it wasn't designed to to defend. I mean... The Alamo had been designed to withstand attacks by native tribes, but not an artillery-equipped army. No. (laughs) All right. So when the Texans took over the mission, because they knew Santa Ana was going to come. Yeah. Texians, they took over the mission following the expulsion of of the Mexican army, and they realised that in this mission there were very, very few firing holes in the walls. So... They knew there was a distinct possibility a battle was going to take place, and they brought an engineer in by the name of uh, Green Jameson, and he constructed a series of like catwalks on the inside of the walls um, to allow defenders to fire over the walls. It's not an ideal situation because it means yes, you've got to stand up over the wall to fire, but you know it's 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 an option and it's the only one they had. That sounds a bit dangerous, actually, especially when you're talking about an army this size. You're exposing mm. enough of your body to, to be oh, yeah. shot. Well, so, I mean, what did the Alamo look like in 1836? It was a kind of complex. Uh, it was a series of buildings. It sprawled across three acres. Uh, the perimeter was about 400 metres. Uh, there was an interior plaza boarded on the east by a chapel, the south by a one-storey building known as the Low Barracks. There was a wooden palisade that stretched between these two buildings. Uh, there was a two-storey barracks, which was north from the chapel, and the northeast wall, there was a cattle pen and a horse corral. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, when, when the Mexicans got kicked out from Texas, they actually left 19 cannons at the Alamo which, to be honest, was a great delight to the hundred or so Texians that actually took up residence in the mission. Yeah, I can imagine it's uh, at least a little bit of firepower. Yeah, I mean, knowing that the Mexican army was most likely going to come back, the commander of the Alamo, uh, Colonel James Neal, sent a letter to the provisional government. If there has ever been a dollar spent here, I have no knowledge of it. So you can imagine, it probably it wasn't the world's greatest place, and it was a bit of a shambles and a mess. I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, that kind of uh, doesn't paint it in a great light, does it? It doesn't. I mean, he requested additional troops and supplies, and stressing that in his opinion, the defenders would be unable to withstand a siege lasting longer than four days. That was optimistic. Yeah. Uh, the provisional government sent 30 men uh, under the command of Colonel James Bowie. But they didn't send them to reinforce the Alamo. Okay. His orders were remove the cannons, destroy the place, and ensure that it can't be used by the Mexicans if they decide to come back. (laughs) Right, okay. (laughs) Yeah? Right. So this is another case of... Um, sort of commands being lost in translation or is it uh, a case they just ignored it completely well there you go you see Um, I mean it's not clear if the occupants of the Alamo at the time knew that Santa Ana was on his way but at that time he was 
Yeah. He was marching. Um, you know, uh, James, well, Jim Bowie, uh, was a, a famous knife fighter, um, and he used to carry a particularly large hunting knife, which, to be honest, that style of knife's become known as a Bowie knife in his honour. Okay. Uh, and and when, when Jim Bowie arrived and he's with his men... He couldn't take the cannons away. Too big, too heavy. Or Did, didn't have any. Didn't have any horses to pull them. Oh right. <laughs> he couldn't pull these cannons away because there weren't enough animals there to tra- do the transportation. Awesome. So he had a little bit, dis- bit of a discussion with Colonel Neal and realised that the location of the Alamo was actually a major strategic important place. And if it fell, the very existence of the Republic of Texas was realistically in trouble. It was at stake. Okay. Uh, so convinced of the importance of it that Jim Bowie wrote to the Texas governor. Uh, the salvation of Texas depends in great measure on keeping Bexar out of the hands of the enemy. It serves the frontier picket guard, and if it were in the possession of Santa Anna, there is no stronghold from which to repel him in his march towards the capital. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the len- letter ended, and these are quite poignant little words. The letter actually ended. Colonel O'Neill and myself have come to the solemn resolution that we would rather die in these ditches than give it up to the enemy. <laughs> Truer words were never spoken. Well, that's true. I mean, he also wrote to the provisional government requesting more men, money, rifles and cannon powder. And his request was considered. Considered, but... Uh well, on the 3rd of February, 30 men arrived under the uh, command of a cavalry officer, Lieutenant Colonel William Travis. Right. He was only 26 at the time, William Travis. And he'd been asked to, by the governor to recruit as many men as possible to help with the defence of the Alamo. So they've now decided they're going to defend the Alamo. Uh <laughs> Yeah, Travis found less than 30. But on his arrival, he was the second-ranked officer at the Alamo. He became second-in-command. Okay. So five days after Travis, a smaller contingent of men arrived at the missions uh, to help with their defence. This group included Congressman David Crockett. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a little win, but it's something I knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is yeah, Davy Crockett, um, and the contingent of the the people in the Alamo at this time numbered around about one hundred and fifty. It's included some wives and children of some of the defenders. Uh, and funnily, most noticeable of which was a, a lady called Susanna Dickinson, the wife of uh, Lieutenant Almiron Dickinson. He's the man in charge of the cannons. She survived the battle, and she actually helped supply a large amount of the information that we actually have about the battle. Okay. It's nice to know they didn't kill women and children. Mm, yeah. So, February the 11th. Now we're creeping further into the year of 1836. Colonel Neal left the Alamo. Now, he left to care for his family because one of them had actually become very, very ill. And he transferred the command over to William Travis, who then became the highest-ranking regular officer in, in, at the Alamo. At 26. At 26 kind of presented a bit of a problem because the non-military men refused to follow his orders. They held a ballot and said they would only take orders from Jim Bowie. Hmm. Jim Bowie. Hmm. <laughs> um, okay. You add this to the fact that neither Jim Bowie 
or William Travis liked each other, uh, there were some serious conflicts there. In fact, Jim Bowie often deliberately countermanded Travis's orders and instructions. And on a lot of occasions, it took Davy Crockett to create a balance when through the sort of things, actually, they they just got done. Hmm. Jim Jim Bowie was ill. At the time of this, he was ill. In fact, he was actually dying. Um, He was an alcoholic, um, and he hid his illness extremely well uh, by just drink um, and he was almost in a constant state of drunkenness there i mean there's conflicting reports about what was actually wrong with him they range from tuberculosis to yellow fever um, to even a blood clot caused by a fall that he'd had at the alamo uh, a couple of weeks earlier but needless to say he was an alcoholic he was constantly drinking and that just wouldn't have helped um, and to be honest, at the time of the battle, he was in bed in the in the care of a nurse and didn't take any part in the defence. No, but he did meet the same end as everyone else, didn't he? He certainly did. Now, although the garrison at the Alamo knew that the Mexican army would reach the Alamo eventually, they didn't believe it would be before the spring. <laughs> to be honest, they just didn't know that Santa Ana had already started a 600-mile march in December the year before. So, yeah. I mean, it was a, it's a hard march. Santa Ana wasn't an easy person to, uh, to, to basically work for. He was the, the, uh, the leader of the country. And the march, the 600-mile march, he lost over 500 soldiers. They died on the march. Wow. Um, well, it's, it's all desert and hot and, you know... Yeah. It's not somewhere I'd want to be backpacking without shorts, at least. I mean, um, to say that the defenders of the Alamo weren't prepared for any fight wouldn't wouldn't be right. They just didn't expect the fight to happen so soon. And I mean, even on the 21st of of February, the the occupants of the Alamo joined the population of the nearby town um, for a celebration of George Washington's birthday. Blimey. You know, so that's, that's the 21st. Two days later, February 23rd, Santa Ana and, had, and an army of 6,000 soldiers or soldates arrived at the village. So 48 hours after their celebration, they're probably still recovering. Yeah. Oh, they're <laughs> just slightly outnumbered here then, so you're talking, what, 200 tops against 6,000? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's only going one way. The, the, the Alamo defenders... Uh, or Texas rebels, as they sometimes get called in 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 some of the documents, they, they ran to the mission. They they ran into the Alamo, um, and the Mexican army just took up residence in the village. Now, it was very important for Santa Ana to take the Alamo back into Mexican ownership. Uh, it was in Mexico. The people inside it were classed as illegals, um, and so Santa Ana wasn't exactly the right person to negotiate yeah yeah he didn't he, 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 had, he had his or he had his mind i'm gonna take this back and yeah sod everyone who's in there yeah it's coming back to mexico so he sends the alamo a message he arranges for a red flag to be shown to the defenders so they flew a red flag from the chapel in the village um, and it's clearly visible from the alamo at the time and that was an internationally recognised message. Mm, I know what that means. All right, means no quarter. Yeah. Uh, surrender now, or everybody dies. That—that's basically it. Uh, <laughs> what did the Alamo defenders do? They fired a cannon at it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So that was the start of the uh, the siege. Now. Jim Bowie disagreed with firing the cannon, so he sent an emissary down to to meet with Santa Ana. Okay. Travis was absolutely furious when he found out, so he sent his own emissary. Right, okay. <laughs> okay. So now the two men down. Yeah. Uh, two representatives met with the Mexican president, and they got told one thing and one thing only. 
total unconditional surrender was the only thing that the Mexicans would accept. I mean, <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious that, that that would have been the most sensible thing to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, would have thought you, so. There's yeah. no, every man in that mission knows if mm. this starts, we're not, you can't win. Mm. Well, they, the emissaries came back and <laughs> the two the two leaders, Travis and, and uh, Bowie, uh, decided that they weren't going to surrender. It was unacceptable. <laughs> so they fired another cannon at the red flag. Mm-hmm. The defenders had now made their choice. Santa Ana placed his, his army around the mission and he was going to weaken the people inside it by starvation of food and water and and basically get them to use up the ammunition that they had. For their part, the defenders had actually stored up a lot of food and there was a well in the middle of the compound. So water wasn't a problem. Hmm. Ammunition, on the other hand, yeah, that was a bit of an issue. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was right at the start of the se- the siege on the second day Jim Bowie or oh, Jim Bowie I keep calling him Jim Bowie or Jim Bowie he's the same person isn't he yeah we it, it might it, it, people know people know <laughs> we're yeah. appeasing the Americans when we say Bowie yeah so. um, Jim Bowie he collapsed uh, and he ended up confined to bed in the hospital section of the Alamo yeah the Texians had gone and lost one of their best assets. He wasn't going to be a factor in the coming fight. Travis now had sole command, and they had no choice. They had to obey him. He's only 26. And believe it or not, there's some places in America where if you're 26 and you look young, you might have to show ID to buy a drink. Yeah. So, you know, and yet he was in command of what would eventually become one of the most famous pre-Civil War era battles ever. Yes, I would agree with that. You know, he's in command. Yeah. Now, Santa Ana wasn't stupid. He he knew that the Alamo couldn't be taken straight away, so he instigated a European-style siege. It started with the army standing just outside the range of the guns from the Alamo. But because he had the, the bigger cannons, he could pound away at the perimeter's walls. The tactic would work, but it worked very, very slowly. I mean, a six-pound cannonball hitting a wall at the same thickness as the ones around the Alamo ain't going to do a lot of damage. No. But the idea was to keep pounding away at them until a hole was made. Now, there was a problem fighting with this, fighting this way. You know, it took a considerable amount of time, and the attackers could only aim their guns at specific spots during the daylight. Yeah. Which gave the defenders time at night to repair any weaknesses in the wall that had been caused by the cannons during the day. Yeah, so you're in the same boat the following day. Yeah. So if you, the problem with that is if you have to def, do repair work at night and repel infantry during the day, you're going to become tired very, very quickly. That is true. And and Santa Ana was attacking on several fronts. I mean, the actual fight, the tiring effect of the constant attacks, followed by the repairing of the walls, the limited amount of dwindling food, uh, their reliance on a rapidly deteriorating water supply. It was a well, but it wasn't a fed well. It wasn't bottomless. No. Yeah. I mean, Santa Ana knew what he was doing. Yeah. You know, I mean... On that initial day, the first first day, Travis wrote um, the first of several letters and he gave them to couriers who would sneak through the lines and on, in every letter that Travis wrote, he asked for reinforcements. Um, the defenders, they didn't want to end up as martyrs. They fully expected Texans to rise up and join them. Yeah. They thought the whole of Texas was going to rise up and come to their aid. And, I mean... Travis, from his letters, he genuinely believed that he could hold the Alamo sufficiently long enough for the regional government to organise an army and march down. From Washington? No, from the regional government. Oh, right, okay. I was going to say, yeah. it's a bit of a... Yeah, the of... regional government of Texas. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit closer, I suppose. <laughs> the fact is, the regional government of Texas, 
didn't know how to deal with the Mexican problem. Part of the, some of them believed that an all-out attack on the Mexican army was the best best act, best course of action. Others believed that let's pull out of the Alamo and, and allow more time to prepare um, and choose a battleground of their choosing. I mean, to be honest, the Alamo was 100 miles away from where the government was. And realistically, some of them just thought it's little, not very important. But uh, they couldn't reach an agreement. Yeah. So, as with all governments, when they can't reach an agreement, they do nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I'll give you an extract of, of, of um, Travis's letter on that first day, okay? Okay. To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, I am besieged by a thousand or more Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and not lost a man. The enemy has demanded surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword. If the fort is taken, I have answered the demand with a cannon shot. And our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never retreat or surrender. I call on you in the name of liberty, patriotism and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due his own honour and that of his country. That was the letter, that one part of the letter that uh, Travis sent on the first day yeah <laughs> so, so the first day he's basically saying if you don't help me we're all gonna die yeah yeah um february the 25th third day of the siege santa Ana launches an uh, an infantry attack against the south wall but with the protection of that south wall a large number of casualties were inflicted on the mexicans mm. um i mean on this day david crockett just ran everywhere encouraging the defenders Santa Ana's army held the river and the roads around the Alamo at the end of the day. Yeah. Travis managed to send another plea to surrounding Texian settlements asking for help and reinforcements. Now, up to this point, Santa Ana hadn't completely surrounded the mission or the Alamo. Whether it's a plan, whether it's part of his plan to allow the couriers through in the hope that more Texians had come and they'd enter the trap, we just don't know. But what we do know is that a lot of courier, a lot of couriers and and sort of riders got yeah. through. It's quite sort of difficult to work out what was going on. I mean, you've got Santa Ana surrounding it, but he's not fully surrounding it. Yeah, so people left. are getting in and out, but not many are getting in. Yeah, dude, it's uh, it it does seem when you look at it that way as as a bit of a tactical decision. Mm. You know, he knows he's got them outnumbered. If another 500 men turn up that's less 500 men he's got to deal with later in the year yeah you know what i mean so i mean one of the couriers that um travis sent was a gentleman called juan seguin and and he's he's quite a famous person in his own right and he sent or he went off with uh some of uh some of the letters eighth day of the siege now they've been holding out for eight days 32 men got into the alamo texians they came to reinforce. Okay. They sneaked in. They'd come from a town called Gonzales, which is not too far away. Um, and to be honest, in the whole of the siege, up to 100 men actually managed to get in and join the defenders. So by the time of the actual battle, the, the, the main part of the fighting, there were around 250 people inside the Alamo. And what isn't wildly reported is that there were a couple of men did exactly the opposite and deserted. But you've got to sort of believe that that's going to happen because Travis's men weren't army soldiers. No. They were just farmers who'd come down in the hope of glory and might have realised, hey, we're not going to get any here and we're going. Yeah, I think, I mean, well, if you've seen the film The Alamo, um, there's a, a famous quote by Davy Crockett in it. I know it's a film; it's not it's not true to history, but um, he says, "I think uh, as just David from Tennessee 
Spitfire would drop down from this wall and leave. Um, but I know as Davy Crockett, the the men are looking to me because obviously, it's, yeah, it, it's along those lines. But you can see the point of well, he was the a con- men, he was a congressman. Well, he, you know, he, he had was a been celebrity in his own right at that time. Oh, yeah. But I mean, you can see that. I know that's it's a film, but they, you know, they're not stupid. You you stood in a. No, no, they're not, they they're can't, not stupid. They're not, they know that at this point it's almost unwinnable. Mm. Um, well, so yeah. I think I would leave. <laughs> I mean, Travis writes another letter on the 3rd of, 3rd of March, but this time the tone has slightly changed. It's more of a plea than a request. And from the tone of it, it appears that he's probably realised the defenders might not survive much like much longer. And... and defeat was the most likely outcome now there's a myth that says travis used his sword to draw a line in the sand and asked for those who wished to defend the alamo to the end cross it legend has it only one man failed to do so but although it's brave and commendable uh, there is literally no evidence whatsoever that this happened yeah okay the story actually comes from um Louis Moses Rose, who is a Frenchman, um, he was the last man to leave the Alamo, and also by legend, the man who didn't cross the line. All right, uh, but it wasn't him who actually told the story. What he did is uh, the story was told some thirty-six years later by a man called William Zuber, who said he remembered it being told by rose to his parents when he was 15 years old Mm. yeah so it's a nice story but it's probably what it is a story yeah yeah and like we said yeah the victors write the history don't they they do so the defenders had been living on corn that they'd managed to get into the alamo before santa Ana arrived now two weeks of corn is not the greatest diet in the world Mm, no it's not the food had been mainly cold cold corn every scrap of firewood had to be collected from outside the walls and there wasn't much of it Uh, the well inside the compound was becoming stagnant so most of the water from the later part of the siege also had to come from the outside and it was the mexicans that controlled the riverbanks both sides So the defenders were exhausted, hungry, tired, low on ammunition. It wasn't a nice place to be. No. Without the threat of constant bombardment as well. That's true. On the afternoon of the 5th of March, Santa Ana ordered his artillery to stop firing. Silence. And silence on the Alamo for the first time in two weeks. Santa Ana decided the end was going to come. He'd had enough of it. It was going to end the next day. He scheduled an attack to begin at 5am on the 6th of March. Yep. Now, that evening, so we're talking the 5th of March, Travis sent uh, a lady called Juana Navera Ellsbury with an offer of surrender out of the Alamo to Santa Ana. Yeah. Okay. Didn't know that. They would surrender on condition that the Texians' lives were spared. Uh, Santa Ana wasn't interested. He, he wanted he wanted victory. The offer was rejected outright. Now, Travis most likely knew that by making the offer, he'd probably given away the predicament and the end was going to come soon. He didn't know how soon. But uh, he also knew that nobody was going to come to his aid. So he calls a meeting to inform the defenders of of what was going on and it's probably at this meeting that the line in the sand if it ever happened would have done but like i said there's been there's no evidence whatsoever yeah that it it ever happened so the night of the 5th of march into the 6th of march was probably the first time that texians had actually been able to get any sleep the temperature had improved slightly it was a slightly warmer night and as as the as they slept the Mexican army moved into attack positions. And the plan that Santa Ana devised was that two columns of soldates would attack the north wall, one column would attack the low wall and cattle pens to the east, 
and a hundred sharpshooters, so snipers. Yeah, and they are the best that Santa Ana had. They would attack the heavily fortified south gate. Now, the plan actually called for the army to scale the walls at any cost. No prisoners were to be taken, and Santa Anna had said, I'm going to have my breakfast inside the compound. <laughs> right, okay. 5am, Mexicans have all formed up just 100 yards from the Alamo walls, 1,800 soldates against 185 defenders. Okay. Just 10 to 1. Santa Ana was about to give the order to attack, and one of the soldiers shouts out, Viva la Republic. Okay. This, this, this cry gets taken up by the rest of the army, and <laughs> the uh, element of surprise is gone. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, the Texians rush to the walls. Davy Crockett starts off defending the south wall, which is where the main attack comes from. Travis, along with his personal slave, Joe, a a black gentleman, they went off to defend the north wall. Travis gets one shot off before being hit in the head and dying instantly. Brilliant. You've lost your leader. I mean, it was pretty dire before that point, but... So, you know, within seconds of the attack starting, Travis is gone. The defenders carried on, obviously, without their leader. Joe, the slave, buggered off to hide. Yep, I don't blame him. Okay. The defenders weren't doing too bad. But then Santa Ana sent a second wave in to the north wall, and just weight of numbers overran the wall. Within 30 minutes of the initial attack the Mexicans had overcome the wall and got inside the compound 30 minutes yeah once there the defenders because they were high up on those catwalks that we spoke about right at the beginning yeah they were easy targets then remember you, you you got highly trained experienced army on the ground aiming at people in the air yeah. The people on the catwalks were not trained soldiers. No. It's only going to be one winner. Yeah. Soon after the north wall was overcome, the west wall was also breached. The uh, The Texians fell back into the long barracks on the east side, but they left their cannons, and they did it so quickly they didn't disable them. The Mexicans turned the cannons around and started smashing shit out of the barracks. Yeah. Where, where they'd gone. That makes sense. Some of the Texians started to wave um, white flags out of the windows, but others carried on firing. And uh, if you're being shot at while also having the white flag waved at you, you are going to be pissed off. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, you would be, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, it enraged the Mexicans so much, they just rushed inside the building. Yeah. Uh, and they killed everyone absolutely everyone eventually they came across sir jim bowie um it had been nice to believe that he fought to the end but to be honest it's actually reported he was unconscious and under blankets and they shot him several times in the head while he's unconscious kind of not necessary to a guy who's in a hospital bed no but (laughs) yeah it's thought process between 40 and 60 texians actually made a run for it um and they got outside the alamo but sitting outside the Alamo, Santa Ana's cavalry, none of them made it. Yeah. The whole battle took 90 minutes. One and a half hours. Game of football. Yeah. Yeah. It's not very yeah. long, is it? Now, history doesn't give an exact number of casualties. Around the defenders, there were supposedly about 250. There's only 189 have been identified. Mm. And... <laughs> Accounts vary from the casualty side of the, of the Mexicans between 60 and 450. But in actual sort of considerable research search by historians who are far better than me, they kind of believe that 
the uh, defenders of the Alamo didn't actually inflict as many casualties on the Mexicans as it actually generally thought. And it's probably between 60 and 100 Mexicans died. Yeah, yeah so it, it more, makes sense that they would have exaggerated. More defenders died than attackers. Than attackers. Yeah, and it was likely to be exaggerated when the Americans won the Well, of course it was. Yeah. Well, everyone does, don't they? You know, you exaggerate I mean, your figures. Nobody will ever know the exact numbers. No. Yeah. But um the, the, the Texians may have lost the the Alamo, but they won the war and they gained independence from Mexico in the end. Now, there were a lot of women and children inside the the, the Alamo at the time of the attack, as I've already said. Um, and they were deemed by the Mexicans to be non-combatant defenders, and they were released unharmed. Yeah. Seven Mex- uh, Texians survived the battle. Okay. And they were brought before Santa Ana at the end of the battle. Now, a lot of reports have come to light to say that Davy Crockett was one of those seven survivors. Yeah, I, I'd heard that. And he was actually recognised by some of the senior officers in Santa Ana's army and Santa Ana himself. Yeah, well, like I said, he was a a celebrity at the time. He was one of the most famous people in America. I mean, when asked what was to be done with them, Santa Ana just said, no prisoners. And from what I gather, the group of people, the, the, the officers who were instructed to go and kill the seven didn't step forward and there were some soldiers at the back who wanted a little bit of fame Mm. step forward and actually killed the seven seven what we would call prisoners yeah Um, so contrary to popular belief probably the most famous participant of the battle of the alamo was actually executed after the fighting had ended Mm. and uh, to be honest that to me that sounds better than him dying in the battle. I know that sounds stupid, but when you think of Davy Crockett, you think of the frontiersman, you think of the fighter, you think of the sharpshooter that he was, and you think of this man who was not scared of anyone. He, you know, he had f- fist fights and things like that. He protected Andrew Jackson. He, you know, he saved Andrew Jackson from getting shot, didn't he? Mm. Um, so you, he's got this reputation of this, like almost a warrior. So. The fact that he survived a battle where ninety odd percent of men died and oh, had yeah. to be killed after the battle actually, I think, leads a bit more credence to him as a person than it does him dying in battle. Yeah, but this is the bit you'll you'll be surprised at. Mm. There were two defenders that survived the battle. Right. One was Joe, Travis's slave. Well, he didn't fight, did he? Well, he, he fought in there initially and then ran and hid. But the Mexican army treated him exactly as he was. A slave, a nothing, a nobody. He can go. I suppose there's one time in American history where it probably was better to be a slave than not, I suppose. Mm. Be the only example I can think of, but yeah. at least there's... Well, the other one... Uh, this is ingenuity at its best, was a man called Brigado Guerrero, and he was a Tejano. So he was a Mexican. He was defending the Alamo, but when the army got into the compound, a Mexican army breaks into the compound, he runs and shuts himself into a cell. He claims to be a prisoner. Now, as as a native Mexican... He was able to convince the victors because there were no other surviving defenders to contradict him. He was released. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's, a, that's actually really clever, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, that he is. He got released. So, uh, yeah. How do we know that, though? Did that come to light later or did the Mexican... came to light later. He went back to um, America and then fought in the uh, Texan War of uh, Revolution. Brilliant. <laughs> that, that's that's. That's hilarious. That's well done. Well done, that man. Yep. Fair amount. I mean, Santa Ana had the structural elements of the Alamo burned down. The site was left in ruins, and it stayed that way for a number of decades. And then it was rebuilt by a gentleman called Major Babbitt in 1854. And then the Civil War arrived, and it just stopped. Yeah, Yeah. It got abandoned again. 
Now, Santa Ana, having beaten the, Al- the, the, the defenders at the Alamo, he went on and took his army up to uh, San Jacinto. I think that's how you pronounce it. And he fought the actual Texan army, the Texian army. Yeah. He lost. Yes. And in in exchange for his freedom, he signed a treaty recognizing Texas's independence. So that's what happened to Santa Ana. Uh, the Battle of the Alamo lasted 13 days. The final assault took 90 minutes. Um, and although the records for the whole thing are kind of inconclusive some of the details are contradicted but the balance of probabilities i've tried to give you a sequence of events as best i can yeah yeah i mean i think uh you've you've covered both sides there and i think it's um it's interesting when you when you just look at the facts so i've always said this with history when you remove the stories you remove the legends you remove the the victors, like you said, obviously the the Americans have obviously written the story of the Alamo. Now, when you remove all of that and just look at the facts, you can understand exactly why the Mexicans did what they did. Yeah, you know, and and I when I've before obviously we've spoken about this when I've looked at the Alamo and um, looked at the the Mexican War, you do sort of see the Alamo as. Um, the group of men who allowed the Texan army to retreat and put a final stand up against the Mexicans, which delayed the Mexicans moving forwards and meant that the regular Texan army could then recruit. And they're almost seen as martyrs in that, in that sense that they, the way they're portrayed is that they were there to halt the Mexicans as long as possible for the reinforcements to have a battle later in the year or later in the war to finally win. Yeah. But that's I not don't what think happened. They th- don't think they thought that at the time. No, but, yeah. but it's, it's a good story when you put it like that. But when you actually look at the facts, essentially they were begging for help and just got ignored. Yeah. So, But that obviously they don't teach that. No. This is what I love about about this type of history is they don't teach you that. They don't teach you that, you know, Mexicans wanted their own land back. They don't teach you that actually when the Americans migrated to Mexico, which or, or Texas, but Mexico country, um, that they were killing the tax collectors and telling them to F off out of their country and when it wasn't their country. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't tell you that. So I think it is very important to, to look at the facts. And when you look at the facts, you can understand that the Alamo was kind of an inevitable outcome. Yeah. Um, it was an inevitable answer from the Mexicans. I think it was always going to go that way. But like I said, you know, you, you're on about the Mexican army being that well-trained. You know, they've just beaten one of the biggest, um, you know, the Spanish. They've just beaten one of the biggest empires in the world. And then they then come up against the regular American army who have just beaten the British a few years prior and probably just got better since then. Um, and, and, you know, not being big-headed, but even in the, the early 1800s, the British were still the best army in the world. So... You know, to to have an art come up against an army that has beaten the best army in the world, again, mm. it's a similar outcome. That yeah, was. A, yeah I, I'm not so sure about that. I just kind of think you say that the British army was the best army in the world, and the Americans, uh, in War of Independence, they actually won it. I would suggest that realistically, we gave it to them. We were fighting the French over in Europe, and America was just too far away. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> they, there was that, and the, you had, you know, at the same time of that, you had you the know, Indian Revolt. We are going to have to do that. We're going to have to put the War of Independence from our side. Oh, um, yeah, I suppose how the British, from, how the British viewed it and why things happened the yes. way they did. It's been requested a oh, few times. It has been requested that we, we do. Will, we will see what we can do. Yeah, because uh, you know, realistically, that we're just just on a, a quick side note. But when when I've looked at it, and when you look at the whole thing, and you think the British pretty much just they wanted it, and then they thought, 
Well, we'll have a we'll have a fight, but we're not gonna we're not gonna commit anything major to it. We'll we'll. France was too close. France yeah. was good. A lot of resources went over to France, and the communications to America were just too long. Yeah. Yeah. You get defeated in a battle over in France. The the king knew about it within twenty four forty eight hours. Yeah. You get defeated in a battle in America. They're not going to know about it for three months. Yeah, and then they're not going to be able to respond uh, to it for another three months. It's just it was just too the yeah. logistics were just too bad. And we kept Canada. So that's <laughs> yeah. I mean that. But when you yeah. look at the, the mm. when they moved into America and and obviously now knowing we only kept the the east coast yeah you only took the the 13 colonies but the the majority of british money that was going into the uk from the the new world as it was called was coming through canada it was coming through the the, the fur trade hudson and bay the company. hudson bay company yeah. and all that that was where all the money was coming from and it shows because when the americans started fighting in 1812 they got their butts kicked by us not commenting no. <laughs> and if you don't know that story i have done an episode of the war of 1812 so that might shock yeah, yeah. you but um yeah i mean it's it's a friendly yeah it's, a, it's it's friendly banter but like i say we uh it's interesting to think how the alamo like i said has been portrayed throughout history and how now when you look at it the you know look at the facts it's yeah very it's certainly different yeah so yeah. Yeah, well, I enjoyed that story. Um, I so I learnt I learnt a few things there that uh, I definitely didn't know. So I hope uh, hope you guys did too. And there's a a few episodes. Well, there's another episode there that you know you're going to be getting in the near future, which is uh, the Civil War. Uh, well, I suppose it was a civil war, really, wasn't it? The American Revolution. I would say it's more of a civil war. Mm. Um, just fought on the other side of the world but yes so the American Revolution but from our point of view you will have to wait for that one because like I said I have looked into this and it is extremely detailed there is a lot of information so it's something that we'll take yeah, there's a lot a we have to leave out yeah <laughs> oh god yeah we might might be a two part of that one Dad. so mm. but yeah thank you for, for joining us again and uh, just remember guys everybody has history make yours great bye bye Geico presents Daily Affirmations. Repeat after me. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts create our reality. Our thoughts create our reality. We're thinking Geico offers claim service 24-7 with personalised attention from an assigned team. Geico offers claim service? Um, I-, I wasn't thinking that. We think it and it becomes our reality. So, uh, what about washboard abs? Let's give it a go. Think really hard. Okay, abs, abs, abs. Yep, abs. keep thinking. To manifest more Geico in your life, go to geico.com. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a stuntman to do their home renovations. Just finished the new sunroom, Mrs. C. The best part is I used candy glass for all the windows, so you can do this. And this. Doesn't hurt a bit either. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. And if you don't want to take the long way to the kitchen, the walls are breakaway too. See? For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today. Geico presents Daily Affirmations. Repeat after me. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts create our reality. Our thoughts create our reality. We're thinking Geico offers claim service 24-7 with personalized attention from an assigned team. Geico offers claim service? Um, I, I wasn't thinking that. We think it and it becomes our reality. So, uh, what about washboard abs? Let's give it a go. Think really hard. Okay, abs, abs. Yep, keep thinking. To manifest more Geico in your life, go to geico.com.